This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Anuja Vaidya, Senior Editor and Special Events Lead at M Health Intelligence. Telehealth experienced an unprecedented boost because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but many of the regulatory flexibilities that spurred telehealth adoption and utilization over the last two years are slated to expire five months after the pandemic has officially been declared over. Amid growing calls from stakeholders and advocacy groups to solidify telehealth access, lawmakers are working to make several temporary rules permanent. Today, Jacob Harper, associate with law firm Morgan Lewis & Bacchius, Krista Natoli, executive director of the Center for Telehealth and eHealth Law, and Ben Steinhaffel, policy director of the Center for Telehealth and eHealth Law, are joining us to discuss the telehealth bills that are winding their way through Congress and key trends in state telehealth legislation. Next week, there will be a part two of this podcast where we will discuss fraud enforcement within the telehealth arena. Jake, Krista, and Ben, thank you for coming on to Healthcare Strategies today. So let's begin with just sort of a brief overview of the current regulatory landscape for telehealth. Jake, could you kick things off here? Sure, I'd be happy to. And, and thanks so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. You know, if you wanted to describe the current regulatory landscape for telehealth, you know, Wild West probably isn't perfectly accurate, but it's pretty close. <laughs> We've seen uh, a tremendous growth in uh, interest around telehealth and rules related to telehealth, certainly as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, but certainly many things happening before that as well. And as we start to potentially, I'm going to knock on wood here because <laughs> I hope it ends, but as we start to wind down toward an ending of the officially declared public health emergency, there's a lot of pieces of telehealth policy currently in flux, right? So there was a number of waivers that really enabled, particularly on the federal side, telehealth to become something that was sort of an everyday accessible service to the great majority of Americans. And they certainly needed it and certainly used it at that time. And as we've seen over the past 18 months or so of folks using telehealth more in their everyday lives and physicians becoming more comfortable to it, you know, even those who weren't using it before COVID-19, where we're going to be going over the next six months, year, two years, five years, is really going to depend in large part on how we maintain the flexibilities that we ultimately do, because that's really enabled telehealth providers to kind of kick things into high gear. But the way that the sort of permanent rules look right now, once the PHE is over, it's going to be very difficult for them to maintain that same level of telehealth service. Absolutely. Krista, would you like to add anything to that? Access is a major issue for patient populations specifically that receive their health care through Medicare. Pre-COVID, there were four originating site barriers that were codified into law under 1834M of the Social Security Act. And so if a provider was going to receive reimbursement for telehealth services under Medicare, that patient had to be in a zip code that was considered rural. So we called that the zip code requirement. Number two is the patient had to be in a specific location. They couldn't be in their home. They had to be in a hospital, a clinic, a skilled nursing facility. Number three is that there's also a provider restriction. Not all clinical providers are reimbursable under Medicare if they administer care via telehealth. 
And then of course, there's only about 144 CPT codes that are considered reimbursable pre-COVID. And like Jake said, we have seen the public health emergency waivers eliminated those originating site barriers. And if we're going to try to improve access to care to very much needed patient populations, we really need to work hard towards making these waivers permanent. And, you know, it's, it's unclear if Congress is actually going to move in that direction towards a permanency. It's likely that they'll probably move forward with some temporary solution, like a two-year extension, so they could have time to analyze some cost drivers as it applies to eliminating these originating site restrictions. Got it. So it still looks like it's going to be in sort of that temporary space for a little while longer, though the consensus definitely seems to be that these should be made permanent, certainly by advocacy groups and people in the industry. And, you know, we have seen several bills being introduced to make these flexibilities permanent. So I'd love to now get specific and talk about maybe two to three federal bills that regulate telehealth that we should be watching out for. Ben, could you kick things off here? And then I'd love to hear from Jake as well. Certainly. And thank you again for the opportunity to join you guys today. It seems like there's a lot of general support in Congress for expanding the telehealth waivers issued during the pandemic. There's two bills that I've been closely watching. Senator Schatz, a Democrat from Hawaii, and Representative Mike Thompson, a congressman from California, introduced the Connect for Health Act. And this has been introduced in Congress at least three times now, and it was used as a, a foundational framework for a lot of the Medicare public health emergency waivers that we've benefited from the last two years. But the legislation would permanently remove uh, the geographic requirements for telehealth services that Krista just noted, and permanently remove all geographic restrictions on telehealth to allow patients in both rural and urban areas to utilize and it would permit temporary coverage of certain telehealth services in order to determine the potential benefit of coverage after the, the PHE expires. And in the Senate, the bill has 61 co-sponsors, and in the House, the legislation has 132 co-sponsors as well. So I, I think that bill is one of the more bipartisan bills with the most support in Congress, but again, it is a, a permanent extension. Another bill that we've been closely watching is Representative Lloyd Doggett's Telehealth Extension Act. And this bill is, is very similar to the Connect for Health Act. However, instead of making a lot of these waivers permanent, it would extend them for two years. Mm -hmm. And the legislation has 67 bipartisan co-sponsors in the House. Part of why we've been tracking this bill so closely is because Representative Doggett serves as the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Subcommittee on Health. So he's in a powerful leadership position on the Ways and Means Committee. And again, it, it seems like there's a lot of concern from policymakers over cost and utilization to the Medicare program. So it's very possible and likely that CMS and, and Congress would prefer a short-term extension so they can continue to collect cost and utilization data. Yeah, and this is Jake Harper. One of the things I wanted to pick up, Ben, to your earlier point about the sort of widespread support, it's interesting to me. So I'm, I'm a layperson when it comes to the legislative arena, right? And it's, it's interesting to me that you can have multiple bills that have literally a majority of the Senate as co-sponsors and the bill is somehow not passed, right? You know, I think one of the things that's been interesting to me is some of these bills have been sitting in Congress since the middle of 2020, right? So like we're talking May, June, July, 2020, these bills already had a majority of the senators, not just supporting, but co-sponsoring the bills. And the fact that they're not passed just 
doesn't really make sense to me when you have that much bipartisan support. It's, I mean, it's one of the only issues that I think the House and the Senate can agree upon at this point from both sides of the aisle. So I think that those are interesting bills. And I think I agree with you that even though there's sort of this permanent one out there, it's much more likely that perhaps the temporary fix will get applied first so that there's more time to think about things. The other bill that I've been interested about is there's one that's designed to actually extend the Medicare acute hospital at home program for another two years as well to investigate that. That's called the Hospital Inpatient Services Modernization Act. And it's still sitting in like the finance committee in the Senate. And there's a there's a corresponding bill in the House. But again, broad bipartisan support. It was introduced by three Republicans and three Democrats. But that would also extend sort of the acute hospital at home program for two years while CMS evaluates whether that has some legs as well. So it seems like this temporary fix, let's get beyond the PHE and then sort of have one to two years of, you know, the new normalcy to evaluate what we want to do on a permanent basis. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. It is really interesting to see all these bills that have sort of been around for a while, have all of this support behind it, bipartisan support, and we still really haven't seen anything really get past that final leg. So what really is the likelihood, Jake, of these bills being passed? And what do you think is holding them back? Because as you said, many of these really only extend these flexibilities two to three years. So what's holding them back from just passing this for now and then sort of coming back to make it even more permanent down the line? Yeah, I I think it's two things. And the first goes back to what Krista said earlier, the fact that there are concerns about cost. There are concerns based on CBO scoring that's existed for a long time as to the relative costs of these bills to the Medicare program, which, as we know, is already sort of on the brink of financial collapse every day. And so adding more and more benefits to it without sort of understanding what the impact of those are, there's good reason for Congress to potentially want to think about that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think it's an issue of whether these services are in fact additive, meaning they cost more, right? Or they're substitutive, meaning they take away costs where you would experience them in somewhere else. So I think that's really the, the sort of battleground that we're dealing with right now when it comes to that cost component. But that's really the big thing that's holding Congress back from just saying, okay, let's, mm-hmm. let's just run with these. Because I think there's definitely a lot of bipartisan support. There's you know, public support, you know, the general population, I think really appreciates the ability to access these kinds of services. So the other issue too, is that with the PHE continuing to be extended, this is not sort of a life or death thing right now. While we want to have some degree of permanence, and I know even as we sit here today, there's concern about the PHE, if it's going to be extended again, and what that's going to mean until we get to a point where the PHE is officially going to sunset, Congress doesn't have to act. And so until there's some impetus to push them to get to this point, I don't think that that's a hot topic issue where they have to go out and and solve for this today. Gotcha. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because while we're sort of seeing that movement kind of slow at the federal level, at the state level, things are moving along. We've seen a lot of bills get passed, get signed. So Ben, let's talk about state legislation. Any major trends in telehealth regulation at the state level that you could kind of provide insights on? 
Certainly. Thank you. So CTEL has been closely watching the, the public health emergencies across all 50 states. And currently there are seven states in the District of Columbia that have active public health emergency orders. And in the remaining 43 states, we've seen most of their state legislatures pass legislation or, or some sort of telehealth package to expand access to telehealth services for Medicaid and their commercial providers in the state. But it seems to be pretty diverse across the board in terms of states adopting interstate licensure compacts or at least easing that for providers. And I know that's a big challenge for a lot of telemedicine platforms and, and vendor service providers that are trying to operate in several states is just being able to navigate that, that licensure process as it looks differently in every state. For instance, I know that the state of Nevada's public health emergency order, I believe, is expiring. And so all virtual providers that are not in state need to apply for licensure as soon as possible. And that can be a lengthy process. Also, we've been closely watching coverage parity states versus payment parity states. Uh, so some states have been expanding telehealth offerings for their Medicaid populations and, and commercial plans. And a lot of them are requiring that the same services be covered, whether it's in-person or virtual, but the payment is not always the same for that. So that's something that we're closely tracking as well at CTEL. But for providers that are, are looking at other states or kind of modeling programs off of other states, it's something that we've been closely watching and, and we recommend they do as well. Absolutely. So just kind of a lot of moving parts there. It looks like some states are doing something, some others are doing others. So Krista, is there anything you'd like to add, anything you're seeing on the state level that you'd like to discuss? Well, CTEL has uh, two working groups that are dedicated to state-based issues. One is we have a licensure and continuity of care working group, and then we also have a reimbursement working group that addresses payment parity. And Ben went in detail about those issues. So we are always looking for those that are very interested in state licensure and what this is going to look like past the PHE and those that are real big advocates of making sure that doctors and nurses and clinicians and PAs get reimbursed for telemedicine, like for like, regardless if the medicine is taking place in person or if it's taking place virtually. So if those are hot button issues for you, we'd encourage you to join us. Fantastic. And, you know, so as you've seen, you know, we have some bills addressing certain aspects of telehealth access and adoption, others addressing some other parts of it. So, Jake, are you seeing any regulatory flexibilities that are needed to further expand telehealth adoption that are not being addressed by the current bills in Congress? In other words, are there any legislative gaps in the telehealth arena that need to be closed? It's a great question. You know, I'd say sort of the basic fundamental elements are for the most part being addressed. And I think there are questions about sort of how far that goes and, and ultimately what flexibilities you want to adopt on a permanent basis, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we think about sort of audio only services, should those be adopted on a permanent basis? And if so, in what context, right? And, and CMS as well, and their sort of regulatory scheme has, has started to do some of that. I'd say though, there are couple areas where, and probably on a federal side, but maybe on state sides as well, as Ben mentioned, I think one of the glaring issues that we are going to face, and, and it's really difficult for a lot of telehealth providers, is that licensure piece, right, mm -hmm. is, is sort of battling the interstate license aspect of that. And I'm not sure that there's a great federal solution for that, but it's it does take coordination among a lot of states. So I suppose that's sort of a mini federalism kind of thing. You know, I think one of the areas where there's no sort of legislative fix right now, although there was in the past, involves prescribing. That's a little bit of a hot button issue, but Congress has spoken many times already on 
its desire for the DEA in particular to come up with some sort of special registration process for telehealth providers to be able to prescribe certain controlled substances in a virtual setting. And to date, the DEA has not followed through on those instructions from Congress. I don't know, frankly, what another bill directing them to do something would do <laughs> because you know two so far haven't haven't done much so that's probably one area to focus on i do think this is probably more general to healthcare and not just telehealth but it has a, a pretty critical component here there are active thoughts right now on how to rework patient privacy and security in the context of cybersecurity and so there is some you know, legislation pending, potentially being considered that would sort of modify HIPAA requirements and things like that. But it's really pretty far away. It's There's nothing really, I think, substantive on that at this point. But that's going to be a critical component. I think we've seen that the technological aspect of telehealth services is one that needs to be addressed pretty carefully and pretty immediately, because that's where I think you have a lot of vulnerabilities to patient privacy, patient mm -hmm. security, and certainly working through a telehealth medium, all of that patient data is sort of on the clouds, ready to be grabbed, which to their credit, most healthcare providers have done a fantastic job of trying to lock that down. But I think the federal government and healthcare stakeholders need to work together to get to sort of a version, I guess, 3.0 maybe of where we are in HIPAA. And that is all we have for today. Thank you to Jake, Krista, and Ben. And don't forget to join us for part two of this podcast next week. Feel free to reach out to us at avedya at extelligentmedia.com. That's A-V-A-I-D-Y-A at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on this topic. You can also use that email address to tell us any healthcare-related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. Also, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please do let us know. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production.